Will you please join me in prayer? Father, with gladness we lift our hearts. With gratitude and confession we come before you in worship. Grateful for who you are and how you set us free. And in this, in this season we remind ourselves again through your word that you came here to be with us, to free us from ourselves and from the grip of sin, from the permanence of death. We give you thanks for the gift of Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, as we turn our minds and our hearts to that word become flesh in our lives and among us, as we come back to these ancient words, will you make them new for us again to the work of your Spirit, who was there when they were written, and now here again as we speak them. In Jesus' name, amen. Two years ago, we, right about this week, we brought our six-year-old daughter uh, that we had adopted home from Liberia. And we learned all these new things about this little child. And one of the things we learned at first is we thought, this is amazing, this girl can read at an unbelievable level at the age of six. She would say things to us like, house, H-O-U-S-E, mom, M-O-M, dad, D-A-D, cat, C-A-T. And I'm thinking, man, for not a lot of schooling, this kid's pretty smart. And as we began to understand more and more, when I then would take other words and put them in front of her, equally as small, she couldn't understand them at all. And then I went all the way back and actually wrote the letter A on a card and held it up for her, and she couldn't make the sound. She had not learned to read phonetically. She had simply learned by rote memory. She would see a word, recognize it, and say it, and yet all the while actually didn't know how to read. The word she sort of recognized, but didn't really recognize it. So often we had moments in a walk in our own discipleship where we're forced to ask the question again whether or not we really understand who Christ is. James Edwards in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark says that if, if we misunderstand Messiahship, we will always misunderstand discipleship. And as I've been trying to work through in the Gospel of Mark with you guys all semester long, we've seen that every mighty deed that Jesus enacts is actually a demonstration and a revelation of his identity. And the book is one long piece of an invitation into discipleship, but first, the invitation has to be made clear. Do you know who it is that you will follow? Do you know who it is that is actually saying these things to you? Because until we understand his messiahship, we will never fully grasp what it means to engage in discipleship. And interestingly enough, it's actually in this week's passage that we reach the literary apex in Mark's gospel. Every narrative has its arc, and we actually hit the peak of Mark's gospel in the text that we run into today. Where Jesus actually, for the first time, has a, an altar call type of moment with the disciples. Pushing them to the point of having to make some sort of declaration. Alright, you've been collecting the evidence, now who do you say that I am? And on the way, we run into a rather confusing story before getting to that one. And yet they're all mixed up together and lead to the point of the text and the center of the discipleship invitation 
and the center of Mark's gospel. If you have your Bibles with me, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Words will also be up on the screen, Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus takes this man and leads him outside. Typically, we've learned throughout this gospel that when Jesus does his deepest work inside of somebody, he leads them outside of the crowd. He, he creates a, a still, quiet moment between him and them. But what happens next is one of the strangest miracle stories in all the gospels. It's a, it's a, it's a miracle that becomes enacted actually in stages. This is the only miracle like this in any of the Gospels, and it might be one of the reasons why none of the other Gospel accounts actually even include this story. Because what do you do with it? It's troubling on several levels. Did Jesus just not have the power the first time to enact a full healing? I mean, if there was going to be any miracle enacted in stages or phases, wouldn't it have been something a little more bigger, like a resurrection or something? But no, this one. Is this an enacted parable, like sometimes Jesus would do? Is there a message inside the miracle of healing? And what does this say then about the identity of Jesus? Because if every mighty deed is somehow telling us something about his identity, what is it that we're supposed to take away from this? Did Jesus wake up that morning and not have a good enough sleep and he just didn't have enough power within him? What is it that we're learning about who he is in this text? What's interesting, too, is in these three verses from verse 23 through 25, nine different times a form of vision is stated, and eight actual different words in the original language are used to describe vision, to see, to look, to have sight, all of these different words all coming at it from every angle, making it very clear to the reader who would have been hearing this in the initial context. This guy is blind on all sorts of levels in every possible way. It's sometimes disappointing that our Bibles create breaks and little subtitles in the places that they do. Because these stories belong together and they follow a literary flow. And I want to show you um, in the structure of Mark's gospel how this actually works and plays out. If you can go to the first one here. So a couple of years ago I came up with a structure of Mark kind of diagram. We couldn't fit it all on one page. So we're going to do this in three slides here. You can see the chapters at the beginning. Um, and then what we would refer to as the section, and then the verses that follow, and a quick little description of each of those passages. And as I've been telling you a couple different times throughout this series, Mark's gospel, of course, is arranged geographically. So you see his Galilean ministry here on the first one, and a whole lot of miracles up front as he reveals his identity in the early part of his ministry. If you go to the second slide... So now, starting in chapter 6, we get around Galilee, where he goes out into this Gentile region. In fact, some of the same miracles that get enacted in Israel now actually get enacted for the Gentiles. And a message about his identity as a salvation figure for all the nations, and not just Israel, gets played out in the way that he lives. 
And you can see in the arrows now drawn at the bottom, we're about to enter into this section in Mark. It's called the on the way section. In the next verse, verse 27, we encounter this little line on the way, en tehoro in Greek. And this is a chorus now that happens nine times in the next five chapters as the journey is made from the total possible northern point all the way down into Jerusalem. But the on the way isn't just about a geographical journey to Jerusalem. It's about the on the way journey of discipleship. Because all of our discipleship in life happens on the way. We don't get to escape the goings on of our life. Who Jesus is within our life comes to us on the way in the midst of our friendships and our schoolwork and our athletics and everything else going on in life because that's what he came for. And so we, the disciples encounter him in this on-the-way section. You'll notice that the only two stories of blindness actually bracket this section. The first one that we encounter that we just read, and then the second one, which we'll actually read next week, the healing of the blind man Bartimaeus. And in the middle here, of course, is this chorus of on the way, on the way, on the way. And up until now, Jesus has been very clear when he hears, heals people. Don't tell anybody. In fact, there's sort of this theological conversation around the, the messianic secret in the Gospel of Mark. It's often referred to as that Jesus is sort of telling everybody, shh, don't tell everybody who, I'm, who I really am and what this is really about. But now all of a sudden in this section, as he's taking the disciples aside and leading them into Jerusalem, preparing them for what is about to happen, his language becomes incredibly clear. And three other times after this next text, in the next few chapters, Jesus goes very clearly, very boldly and directly into the disciples' face and into their understanding of discipleship to help them see and understand who he is. But you can see now the way that this is constructed, that the passage we're hitting today really begins the center of Mark's gospel. Because Mark's gospel is arranged around the question of discipleship. The question of how will you respond to the identity of Jesus that is revealed. If you go one more slide, and you can figure out from here, now they get into Jerusalem, and then it sort of rushes through the rest of the passion narrative and we end, of course, with the resurrection in a very, very brief, concise version in Mark's gospel. It almost feels abrupt in the way that it ends. So that's kind of the construction of Mark's gospel, and we see why. And I want to show you now why these passages all belong together, why Jesus is enacting a parable, and why healings are teaching us about him, and what he's wanting the reader to respond to at this altar callish kind of moment in his gospel. We pick up the story now in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And here's the line. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked them. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So they go from Bethsaida, 25 miles north, to Caesarea Philippi, another one of these places where good Jewish boys do not go. There's a temple here and some really twisted and disgusting practices that happen around um, worship of the god Pan, and, um, and in fact, acts of actual sexual intercourse that would take place in that place with goats and other animals. It's just sort of this filthy place that no good Jewish boy would ever go. And it's interesting that Jesus takes them there and asks them this question. Who do you say that I am? Because once you figure this out, it works in every 
situation. The identity of Jesus revealed to us is not saved for our worship moments in church or when we only gathered in the Christian community, but the salvation, the identity of Jesus plays in the darkest places of the world. And I think it's with great purpose that he keeps taking his disciples into these places and challenging their understanding of him because you need to understand that Jesus came for the worst of everything and not the cleanest of what you can make yourself to be. But even now, their answers to his question are still very safe. They're still trying to put new wine into old wineskins. They can't break out of the mentality that Jesus is still just some sort of prophet. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But of course, impetuous and impulsive Peter will actually say the one thing that everybody's hoping but never actually dares put into words. Jesus asks him the question, asks all of them the question, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. But understand this. When Peter says you are the Messiah, his understanding and hope of what that means is becoming the realization of everything the disciples have been hoping for. Everything within their culture longed for a Messiah who would come and get rid of the Romans and restore Israel to greatness again. They had their version of what a Messiah meant. There are no Old Testament texts that talk to the same extent about what suffering was going to be and how, do we, how we, he would go to a cross and how there, w- there would be this, this difficulty even for those who would follow him. And so it's not even almost Peter's fault that he just absolutely cannot understand and he can't see. And so when Jesus says, you are the Messiah, he's essentially saying... I see, peop- I see you like the guy saw people walking around like trees. I kind of see you as a Messiah. I can kind of read the letters, but I don't really know how they all work yet, and I don't know how they make sense. And we know this is the case, that Peter too needs a second touch in his understanding of discipleship because of what happens next. In verse 31, He then began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Peter needs a second touch. Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, and Jesus describes, this is what it really means to see the Messiah for who he is. Peter can't receive the answer. He doesn't like it. It doesn't jive for what he wanted. Peter is just like us. He wants a gospel and a Messiah and a kingdom that comes in his own image. He wants to lay his plans down for all of life and have God fit into it. He has an idea of what God needs to do in the world. He wants a Messiah. In the same way that we want an antivirus to work on our computer, Just come in, point out the little bug fixes, hit the fix button, and then it kind of goes through and sorts them all out. But it doesn't fundamentally change. Jesus' answer to Peter is essentially, I don't want to be the antivirus and just fix the bugs within you. I want to rewire the hard drive. I want the whole thing, Peter. Because your understanding of what it means to have a Messiah right now is still broken. It needs to be fixed. 
You want it on your terms. In fact, let me go be so bold, Peter, as to tell you. And when it says he rebukes him here, the word is epitomao. It's the same word that's been used throughout Mark's gospel every time Jesus casts out a demon. He is encountering the satanic in this moment. That's why he says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter is Satan in this moment? No. But because every gospel that is ever constructed in our own image, every time you and I ever wanted a Jesus to fit our lives and not have our, our lives transformed to fit into his vision of renewal and redemption and restoration in the world, that is a satanic dream. The thief, it says that Jesus said the thief kills only to steal and kill and destroy. Everything that is satanic in our self-absorption is designed to kill us and take the life away from us. Jesus wants something better for Peter than his own best dream. He wants to give him a vision of the kingdom. Peter's eyes of faith need a second touch. He doesn't get a Messiah on his own terms. He doesn't get a world with a God that wraps around his vision of how things ought to be. Jesus says, Peter, I can do you so much better than that. But he has to deconstruct and take apart Peter's entire vision. He and all the other disciples and every one of us need a second touch and another second touch and another second touch. Because our discipleship gets crafted along the way. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed. This does not fit in with Peter's understanding because remember, your messiahship is going to determine your discipleship. And if that's what a messiah looks like, oh my goodness, what does that mean for us? You have to think that Peter's running that question through his mind. If that's who the messiah is, then what does that mean for everybody else who follows him? And then so Jesus does this new change in Mark's gospel and becomes incredibly Bold in what he says. He spoke plainly about this, it says. And then he called the crowd to him with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. This is one thing that Peter is going to learn later, isn't it? By the time Jesus is crucified, Peter has not yet learned to deny himself. He has, in fact, denied Jesus three times, but he has not yet learned to deny himself. But on the other side of the grave, Peter grasps this. And when you read his epistles in the New Testament, we see that Peter now fully grasps what it means to be a disciple that follows a Messiah that looks like this. And so the question I think that each of us as aspiring disciples has to ask in this text as we get led to this place is understanding the same question is being asked of us. Who do you say that I am? And when we answer... Clearly, as we are taught in Christian circles, you are the Son of God, you are the Messiah. Do we mean it in the same way that Peter means it? But I still want you on my terms. Or do we long and actually are willing to not only accept, but actually long for, Jesus, I know that you are not done in me yet. Jesus, a second and a second, second time, touch the eyes of my faith. Restore my sight. Help me understand what it really means to follow you. I don't want you on the periphery. I don't want you just as a celebration that comes around a few different times in the calendar of my life as I keep rolling around in the dreams and things that I've aspired to or all the things that I think is going to make the world better. Jesus, in your wisdom, I fully and entirely submit. Jesus, in a denial to myself and in learning to follow you and suffer if that's what it takes, I want those eyes. I want that heart. 
Do we have the ambition within us to receive the actual gift of this season, which is not to fill our lives with more things to fulfill our ambitions, but to be broken again all the way to the core, to see Jesus for who he really is? Who do you say that I am? And then even once you think you have the answer to that, can I touch that sight again? And again, and again, as I take you on the way and develop a heart of humility within you. This is Jesus' language with the disciples as he takes them along. Breaking that which is all selfish and therefore even satanic within them out so that they can truly receive him. That's the message and the challenge and the gift of this Advent season. Not what else we could pile on not else what we can fit in, but how clearly we can really see. Jesus, I want some new eyes for Christmas. Touch them again. I know you're not done with me yet. I know that you are not done with me yet. For Christmas, I want a new set of eyes. I want to see your kingdom. I want to see the places where you're working. I want to be changed by you again and again and again. And I don't want one more gift laid on my lap. I want to lay myself before you because there and only there do I know that I can absolutely find the freedom I'm looking for. I don't want to be broken by my own dreams. I want to be set free by yours for the world. That's what he came for. That's what he came to give.